Welcome to the next edition of Fixed Interest, where we will be discussing the prospects for the global economy. My name is Shali Shari, and I'm a managing director in the America's Sovereign Team. It's a great pleasure to host Fitch's chief economist, Brian Coulton. Brian, it's great to discuss the global economic outlook as we bid goodbye to 2021. It would be really good to get your take on how the global economy has absorbed the pandemic shock and the challenges that you're seeing ahead for 2022. Now, in the recently published Global Economic Outlook, Fitch has downgraded global growth slightly to 4.2% from 4.4% previously. And we're forecasting slower growth for China, where we expect growth to slow to below 5% from about 8% in 2021. We're also expecting emerging markets to experience a slowdown, especially Brazil. We've also upped our inflation forecast for several countries and have brought forward the timing of the U.S. Fed hike. So lots to discuss here, and let's get straight into our discussion. So first, let's discuss uh, the inflation fears that have really moved center stage, uh, which is quite a contrast to anything we've seen for at least a decade or so. So what's the big picture here? Is this a regime change in your view? Are we really heading back into the 1970s? Or will this be just a transitory departure from the low global inflation environment we've all gotten so used to? Well, it certainly does feel like quite a change from the debates we were having prior to the pandemic. Central banks and financial markets have spent an awful lot of time over the last decade worrying about the risk of deflation. And that was a conversation which played into the lower for longer mantra in fixed income markets. So to have inflation become a major policy concern is a very big shift. As analysts, we've had to dust off concepts like the wage price spiral that we hadn't really focused on for years. In terms of the back to the 1970s view, though, that seems a bit far-fetched to me. High inflation back then followed the collapse of the Bretton Woods exchange rate framework, which left monetary policy unanchored with nothing to tie down inflation expectations. We suffered a major oil price shock back then, which hit much more energy-intensive economies than we have today. And we also had collective bargaining wage-setting arrangements and greater unionisation, which gave Labour more power to demand inflation compensation in wage contracts. These all look very different today. Independent central banks and inflation targeting regimes have been very successful in bringing inflation down on a sustained basis since the mid-1990s. And inflation rates in the largest emerging markets are incomparably lower today, even after the recent increases. Nevertheless, the pandemic and the associated policy responses and changes in behaviour have created some real economic imbalances that policymakers can no longer ignore. These have the potential to turn what we would characterise otherwise as a one-off pandemic shock to the price level into higher inflation on an ongoing basis. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Let's get a bit more specific and dig deeper. After surprising almost everyone over the last six months, where exactly do you see inflation going from here on in the US and Europe and why? We think this inflation shock has further to run. We see US and UK inflation peaking in March or April next year, a little bit earlier in the Eurozone reflecting Germany's temporary VAT changes. The biggest driver of the increase in inflation to date has been a sharp rise in core consumer goods prices, which has been driven by a global shortage of goods. The unprecedented jump in US durable spending has been the catalyst, but it's been felt worldwide, with goods prices going up everywhere. There's a whole bunch of indicators that tell us there's not been any decisive easing in these shortages so far, even though they may be no longer getting worse at the margin. What that means in terms of our inflation forecast is that month-on-month price rises for goods 
such as cars, laptops, furniture, etc., going to stay high for several more months at least. And now on top of this goods price shock, we've recently seen energy and fuel prices surge after the jump in oil and gas prices in October and November. The gas price shock in Europe has been spectacular. And in combination, we see energy and fuel prices adding around 1% to inflation rates in Europe in the next three to six months. But as we get towards the end of the first quarter of 2022, we would expect goods prices to start to level off. The impact of the huge fiscal stimulus that's boosted US durable spending will be fading fast by then, and consumers will presumably be switching back towards spending more on services, and the supply of consumer goods is also going to increase as firms have been investing a lot in enhancing manufacturing capacity over the last 18 months. Now, if we're right about this, the year-on-year inflation rate for goods prices will start to fall quite rapidly in the second half of next year. And as long as energy and fuel prices don't continue to rise, they'll also be contributing to falling inflation rates second half of 2022. Now, these two parts of the inflation equation, goods and energy, do look quite likely to fade rapidly later next year. The bigger uncertainty, though, surrounds what happens to the inflation rate of services and whether that steps up in response to higher wage growth that we're seeing now, particularly in the US and the UK. This is a much bigger risk in the US than in the Eurozone. And in our latest forecasts, we do expect US services inflation to pick up quite noticeably. US core inflation is expected to stay around 3% in late 2020, 2022 and 2023, even after the goods price shock has played out. That's much higher than we were seeing pre-pandemic. Very interesting, Brian. So what does all this mean for monetary and broader macro policy uh, perspective? Uh, Clearly, the huge and rapid response of macro policy has been widely viewed as successful in limiting the economic damage from the pandemic and really allowing the economies to get back on their feet. But what's the role of macro policy going forward and how will it differ between the regions in your view? I think we're reaching a point where many policymakers will start to feel they need to sort of get out of the way. What I mean by that is there's a growing danger that leaving macro policy in fully accommodative mode could start to actually get in the way of a sustained recovery. With economic activity getting back or above pre-pandemic levels and some clear imbalances and bottlenecks having emerged, continuing to pump up demand with monetary and fiscal policy stimulus may not actually be the best way to ensure continued growth. This point seems much closer in the US than elsewhere. The size of the fiscal stimulus there in particular over the last 12 months is pushing the economy towards possible overheating territory. We now see a positive output gap emerging in the US. If we look at how much US domestic demand has expanded in nominal terms since before the pandemic, it's actually outpaced the sum of potential GDP and the 2% inflation target. Now that's pretty remarkable for a period which encompasses the pandemic recession. This cyclical position increases the chances that the inflation shock we've seen so far starts to push up inflation expectations to levels that are no longer consistent with the target. And we're already seeing wage growth and rental inflation rise in the US. Two clear indications that inflation is in fact broadening already. In these circumstances, it's increasingly hard to justify holding monetary policy settings in such an aggressively supportive mode. What was striking in Powell's recent more hawkish testimony was that he started talking about inflation as a real threat to a sustained recovery. That's quite new language from him, and I think it helps pave the way 
for a rate hike next year. There is quite a contrast here though with the Eurozone, where the output gap is still negative, GDP is still short of pre-pandemic levels, wage growth is not picking up, core inflation has risen far less dramatically, and inflation expectations do indeed seem to remain pretty low. And the historical backdrop, with actual inflation rates and expected inflation rates persistently falling short of the ECB's target over the last 10-20 years, is quite different. ECB interest rates don't look like they're going anywhere soon. Now, Brian, let's shift our focus a bit. Uh, We've clearly talked a lot about inflation, but surprisingly little about growth. Uh, So I have two big questions here on growth. First, can the private sector take up the baton of growth in the US and Europe as macro policy support unwinds? And the second question really is around China. Uh, What are the prospects for China's growth as the property sector weakens there? Well, on the first one, I think the answer is firmly yes. When we look at the prospects for household incomes, it looks pretty good. With job growth picking up, unemployment recently falling, and wages firming. And households' financial balances, which we measure as the difference between saving and investment, still at historic highs, thanks to the surge in saving rates seen through the pandemic. With stock market and house price gains having also boosted housing household wealth, they're pretty big cushions for households in aggregate to absorb a withdrawal of sovereign support in the form of stimulus checks or other transfers. Now, one big fear we all had was that unemployment would surge in Europe once the various furlough schemes or job subsidy schemes expired. But the evidence that we're now seeing from the UK, where the furlough ended in September and unemployment hasn't risen, looks like we were too cautious on this. And we've been revising down our unemployment forecasts across Europe in this edition of the GEO as a result. Companies in aggregate also look to have come through the pandemic in fairly good financial shape. The higher costs that they're now seeing generally are being passed on to consumers, so they're avoiding the sharp profit squeeze. And all the indicators tell us that the appetite for investment spending looks pretty solid. There's been no tightening in the supply of bank credit, and neither have we seen a wave of bankruptcies in the small and medium-sized businesses that many of us expected at the start of the pandemic. So all all told, it does look to us as if the private sector can carry on supporting growth as sovereign support is withdrawn. Another reason, of course, for expecting that policy support to to be taken away. Now on China, the slowdown has proved more intense than we expected as the property sector has weakened quite sharply. We've also seen a slower policy easing response this time round than we've seen in the past and than we were anticipating. Certainly, given the economic news, we were expecting to see policy being eased more rapidly than has actually happened. All we've had are two RRR cuts announced in June and then recently in December. And in combination, uh, this incoming news on activity and on the policy response has led us to us cutting our 2022 growth forecast for China to below 5, 5%. We're at 48 now. Nevertheless, I think it's important to remember we are expecting policy easing to accelerate as we head into 2022. Perhaps one of the reasons policy hasn't been eased so much so far is that export growth has been really incredibly strong. Uh, But as that slows into next year, we do think we're going to see more policy easing. The key variable to watch here is the rate of credit growth, and that already looks like it's turned the corner. We saw a pickup in November from 9.7 in October to 10%. It's a very important signal that the credit cycle has started to turn. We've got more RR cuts coming next year, we think, and we also expect the PBOC to cut the policy interest rates. So we would expect credit growth to pick up further from here 
and that's got to act to stabilise growth later in 2022. And finally, Brian, I have to ask you about Omicron, as this is clearly a topic that investors and listeners would like to know about. I know that you're not a scientist, but how does the Omicron variant play into your economic forecast? And what are the key risks it entails from a macro perspective? The Omicron variant emerged just as we were finalising our forecasts. We decided it was simply too early to make major changes. We just don't know how severe its impact is going to be or how resistant it will be to existing vaccines. Obviously, the key risk is that we see some of the major economies reverting to highly stringent nationwide lockdowns to protect health systems from becoming overwhelmed. But it's important to remember that economies have already adapted a lot to pandemic conditions. Each successive virus wave is having a smaller and smaller impact on GDP. Scientific understanding of the virus improved massively, and the vaccine rollout has allowed a sharp reduction in reliance on non-pharmacological interventions that take such a heavy toll on the economy. Political resistance to lockdown measures also looks to have increased. So all told, it seems quite unlikely that Omicron will take us back to the recessionary conditions of the second quarter of 2020. That said, if the transmissibility of COVID-19 increases due to Omicron or other new variants, it will bring into focus countries where vaccination rates are lower and potentially could have bigger downside risks for growth in emerging markets. Our final point to note here is that the rise in inflation complicates the policy response to pandemic-related setbacks such as Omicron. If new lockdowns or voluntary social distancing behaviour constrains labour supply recoveries or exacerbates supply, supply chain shortages, this could put further upward pressure on prices. So central banks will need to think very hard about this before delaying monetary policy normalisation in response to the discovery of a new variant. Great. Thanks, Brian, for all your tremendous insights. We clearly have covered a lot of ground here. Uh, thank you for listening in. And for more on the global economic outlook, you can access our research on our website, fitchratings.com. Hope you join us for the next edition of Fixed Interest. Thank you.